In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. What's up, everybody? Today, we'll be, we will be discussing the Latin Mass and related topics within Catholicism. Let us again note that I, Evan, am a practicing Catholic, while Daniel is an atheist. Today's episode is less of a debate about religion. Please see episode five for that. Yeah, Check us please out. do. Check us out on YouTube, BitChute, all our other platforms. And more of a discussion about the traditional Latin Mass and traditional Catholicism in general. Please know that we will not be able to cover every argument of all these complex questions. So in many cases, we may summarize the position of both sides and let the listener do more research on their own. While I have read a good amount on this stuff, neither of us are experts. Also, this episode was never meant to be a hot take on what Pope Francis did last month, although we will discuss that. Yeah, we will go over that in detail. You'll, you'll get your fill on that. So what are we going to cover in today's episode? First, what is the Catholic Mass? What are the different types and rites? And isn't Latin a dead language? Then Daniel's commentary and observations on the Latin Mass we attended recently. The Council of Trent. The Second Vatican Council. Comparing Latin and Novus Ordo Masses. Why is Vatican II so controversial? Factions within the Catholic Church today and the crisis in the West when it comes to religion. How should a faithful Catholic respond? Pope Francis's modu proprio and the public response. And finally, what will be the future of the Roman Rite itself? And I'm glad you clarified there on the crisis in the West as it relates to religion because there are so many crises going on in the West, but we can't cover them all. We're just going to talk about religion today. True. And I have a lot more of a stake in this than Daniel does, but he's a very curious person who likes to be uh, informed. Yes. So. Yeah, this was very interesting uh, to me and doing a lot of this research. It was very new to me. And, of course, as we'll talk about later, uh, going to a Latin Mass, very new so you'll get to hear about my take on that uh, a little bit later. Right. So first, what is the Catholic Mass? The Mass is the liturgy of the Holy Catholic Church, which culminates in the Eucharistic celebration. In Catholic theology, the bread and wine are literally transformed into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ in a process known as transubstantiation. The Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life, according to the Catechism, and the six other sacraments are oriented towards it. Eucharist means Thanksgiving. Currently in the Latin or Roman rite, they're interchangeable terms right now, by far the largest rite in the Catholic Church, there are two liturgies, the old school Latin mass and the new mass in the vernacular or the language of the local people. They differ in more than language, however. They use different verbiage and the actions of the priests and laity differ. We will get into more detail later on. Uh, contrary to popular belief, not all Latin or not all Catholics are Latin Rite Catholics. About one percent of Catholics belong to the Eastern Catholic churches. They are churches which, due to historical reasons, have been allowed to retain their original liturgies, theologies, spiritualities, and disciplines while submitting to the Bishop of Rome or the Pope. They are fully Catholic and fully in communion with every other Catholic. Believe it or not, there are twenty three Eastern Catholic churches, really, yeah. The most, the biggest one is probably the Byzantine, right? Yeah, I, that's a big name there. Yeah. Uh, when you think of Eastern Orthodox, what is what is that in relation to this? Well, the Eastern Catholic churches have very similar liturgies to the Eastern Orthodox, but most of them split, or most of them split with the Orthodox in the Great Schism of the 11th century. Okay, but then for various reasons, they came back into communion with Rome on the condition that they could keep their old stuff. Oh. So, like, a lot of them have married priests. And and they, that was cool with them? They they said they'd allow it. Yeah. I'll allow it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. These 23 churches are based on five liturgical traditions, Alexandrian, Antiochian, Armenian, Chaldean, and Constantinopolitan. So I don't know if we know where all those are, but... Uh, no, that's that's a lot. Uh, Ale- Alexandria is Egypt. Antioch is, I'm pretty sure, in modern-day Turkey. Armenia is its own country. Yeah. Chaldean is, like, Near East, kind of Middle East, I'm pretty sure. And Constantinopolitan is obviously Constantinople, or Istanbul today. 
but we have never been to an Eastern Catholic or even an Orthodox liturgy, so we will leave it at that. So why does the church still has, have Latin as its official language? Doesn't it know it's the current year? All joking aside, we must remember that Latin is still the language of the Catholic Church. Most of its documents are written in Latin and translated to other languages from there. In fact, Latin is the official language of Vatican City. Uh, and the Latin Mass is still performed today and performed almost exclusively in Latin. So don't call Latin a dead language. Yeah, I, I've always heard that. People have always said, oh, Latin's a dead language, dead language. And I guess in the sense of, uh, you know, just some Joe Schmo walking down the street, just running into his buddy, hey, friend, and then starts talking in, in Latin. I guess that doesn't happen. Mm. But, I mean, it's still used. So hard to say it's dead. And I will speak very briefly before we move on. There are two different types of Latin. There's uh, classical Latin, which is what, like Caesar would have spoke. Yeah. And then there's ecclesiastical Latin. Which was... Which is what the church today speaks and has spoken. Mm-hmm. It's more... It's The vocabulary is pretty identical. It's more the pronunciation. Ecclesiastical Latin is pronounced more like Italian is today. Yeah. Different... Uh, like C, for example, is can be a ch sound instead of always being a ca. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, it's not that important. Well, that's pretty common in, in Italian, right? In, in general. Yeah. Because... Yeah. 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 Now, do we know, like, or do historians know how it would have sounded in ancient Rome? Yeah. Like, they know how how Caesar would have spoken. Yeah. They, really? And most students in schools learn how to speak Latin in the classical form. And oh. the Duolingo course is classical Latin. Oh, really? So yeah. how can you say it's dead? That's crazy. If they yeah. know that all that much about it, yeah, there's no way it's, it's dead. Like, do you know Caesar's famous saying whenever, you know, the, I came, I saw, I, con- I conquered? Do you yeah. know how to say that in Latin? I do not. You don't know what it is in Latin? No, but I'd love to hear it. Well, most people say, veni vidi vici. That's okay. how you say it in modern ecclesiastical Latin. Yeah. But V's were pronounced like W's back then, and C's were always cuh. Mm-hmm. So it's, veni vidi wiki. Man. It just doesn't sound the same. It makes as, you sound like a weenie, weenie, yeah. weenie is what it makes you sound like. I, I can't imagine standing there and hearing Caesar like this, you know, this larger than life guy say, weenie, 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 you know? <laughs> nah, man. You didn't but, come and conquer and see anything. Uh, to me, I don't know. That Vin, just doesn't Vinny Vidi Vici sounds so much better. Yeah, it? if he had gone up and said that, they wouldn't have known what he was talking about back then, but we would have been like, oh, man. So, that was cool. Speaking of Latin, what did I observe uh, when I went to Latin Mass, my first one? Let's talk about that. First of all, there was uh, a lot to take in. I'd never been to a Mass like this before, only an English one with Evan more than a year ago, and maybe one other one with friends of the family, but I can't quite remember. It was a long time ago. So the setting itself wasn't very familiar to me. But I believe I made some interesting mental notes, uh, as it would have been rude to pull out my phone and write them down or take a video, you know, like that picture of Kanye West uh, holding up his phone, uh, or pull out a tape recorder. Uh, Catholics frown on that, and Jesus probably does too. So I didn't do that. I paid attention and tried to remember as much as I could. So here's my first observation. Beautiful architecture in the church. Incredible, amazing, really breathtaking when you really look at it. A cool juxtaposition of huge open spaces over the pews and uh, close human-sized archways down the sides. The stained glass is really just just awe-inspiring. True artistry there. And the images of Christ were beautiful as well. And uh, many objects carried by uh, the priests and altar boys were ornate, as were their robes and uh, other attire. It all worked together to really show, to me, a dedication to God and the church itself. And everything in it was uh, really a monument to God, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, If you want to show how much you value him, him being God, and impress on people how much they should value him as well, you got to build him your biggest temple. You got to make your most beautiful art, wear your nicest clothes. And uh, that brings me to my second observation, which was that nearly everyone was well dressed. I'd even say that some people in there looked pretty dapper, uh, but not flashy, you know, not, not too over the top. Everyone was pretty modest. Uh, Evan says Latin mass goers usually dress up more than those at the regular service. That's, you would still say that's true? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and based on what I saw, I, I can confirm that. Many women uh, wore veils, more than a dozen, I think, in there uh, at the time were wearing veils, which I would have expected to see more of in maybe like an Eastern Orthodox setting, but um, it was very surprising, but it was really in full force there. What would you say? Would you say that's more likely 
to be seen in another type of church, or would you say you're just not enough familiar with it to know? Well, in the Latin Mass community, a lot of them don't even consider the newest code of canon law. Yeah. The old one from 1917 mandated that all women wear veils. Really? 1917? Until, until the 1980s when they revised it, it was technically women were supposed to wear veils in church. So a lot of people recognize the old? Yeah, a lot of people like choose to retain the old canon law, even though it was abrogated by the most by 1983 or whenever. Oh, okay. But, hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. It's I don't know about Orthodox. I've never been in uh, yeah. one of their liturgies. Oh, okay. Uh, the priest himself was wearing something I did not expect and reminded me a bit of a leprechaun. No offense. But what was that outfit about? I mean, he had like a, a cool hat well, and he, he was kind of in, dressed in green a little bit. He was redhead, so it didn't help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but is that is that like pretty common yeah. for him to be dressed in that yeah, way? His, his hat like had a little circle thing on top, almost like you know, on a Santa hat. Yeah. I don't know what the name of it is, but it's like a traditional hat that's worn by the priest. Oh, okay. He takes it off when he gives this uh, homily or sermon. Yeah, I did notice some taking the hats off and on. Now, is is that type of outfit for a special event or a special just, service? Just a Latin mass outfit. Oh, okay. He so won, he would he wear ne- something He doesn't different. wear that hat in regular services. I got you. I got you. That makes sense. Observation three. A woman a few rows ahead of me was dressed nicely, but not in her Sunday best. But the young man beside her was. I predicted uh, that she was like me, an outsider, and uh, the guy next to her was her boyfriend bringing her to his church. And when he got up to receive uh, the Eucharist, right, body and blood of Christ, uh, she sat down. She stayed uh, where she was, uh, just like I did. So right then, my suspicion was confirmed. And now here's my question. Is it common for people to bring friends and significant others uh, from other religions to a service like that? Most of the time it would be just Catholics who've never been to an English mass. Okay. But, I mean, I brought you. So, yeah. of course, I mean, there's always going to be visitors. They're uh, always yeah, of welcome. Course. Of course. Unlike that, well, we'll get to stereotypes of Latin mass people later. Never mind. Yeah, yeah, we'll get into that. Observation four. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of Latin, duh. And uh, although I did not understand any of it and mostly had no idea what was going on, it had an appeal. As the kids say, it was a vibe. And it really was. And I think that's the intention there. It was somber, serious, and purposeful. And I appreciated that. You can keep your worship jam CDs and your I Can Only Imagine sing-along. That's a good song, though. Debatable. That'll be a hot take episode. (laughs) For me... It's just not how I like my religion. God is supposed to be taken seriously. Don't you think that he takes you seriously? Don't you want him to? That would be my take on that. Observation five, the suffering. Some have said that Catholicism puts a heavy emphasis on suffering, and some people would say that's an understatement. I believe this is true, and this is good. The path laid out for followers of Christ is not easy. If it were, everyone would do it, and there'd be no need for hell. There'd be no need to relearn uh, or study anything or learn the right thing, the wrong thing to do. You would just do it all. It would be easy. Boom, boom, boom. But it's not like that. A life of virtue is hard and requires suffering. Even the non-religious can recognize that the easy things in life are often the things which cause harm to us and others, or at best, lack any meaning or any real reward. In many ways, this 90-minute Mass was uncomfortable, a little slow, mostly in a foreign language, lots of up and down, and by the end of it, your knees hurt from all the kneeling. But when you remember that Jesus was willingly tortured, persecuted by his own people, spent a whole day nailed to a cross, then died, it doesn't seem like ours is too high a price to pay for the promise of eternal salvation, especially when you can get there for an hour a week in the air conditioning while following some very simple moral rules with literally no Romans anywhere. You don't have to watch out for those guys. (laughs) Observation six, the sermon. The sermon that day was great. I mean, it was incredible. I really liked it. I'll sum it up like this. What's your excuse? The priest talked about many people in antiquity and in recent news who had been martyred in the name of Christ. Some of them knew it would probably happen to them, but they continued to spread the word anyway, despite the danger. At one point, he motioned to the congregation and asked, why are there so many empty seats? And it was true. Only about half the seats were filled and there were no COVID restrictions, plus the Sunday obligation has been reinstated. He said that they, the Catholics present, should be doing more to spread the word of God. For God had opened their ears to hear the message and their mouths to spread the message. 
it's no use just to listen, for then it will die with you. He even name-dropped Jordan Peterson, a guy who Evan and I are pretty big fans of on the podcast, and used him as an example of an agnostic man who is doing more to spread the word and teachings of Jesus than many devout Christians. So to me, it seemed like he was asking the congregation, why aren't we doing more to spread the word of God when we are the ones who know all about it, who understand it, who love it, and who believe it to be the most important thing in our lives? Very good questions and a very good sermon. Yes, some very good observations. Thank you, thank you. Some of those were just based on the priest in the church we have, and they're the same for regular Mass, too. Like, we just always have that good priest. Yeah, yeah. He's so, always uh, on fire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, w- what I might say is a disclaimer, results may vary. Um, you know, it may depend on who you get, but some of the stuff other than the sermon-specific details, you're probably going to see everywhere. Yep. So now let's cover the Council of Trent, which is the backdrop for this whole discussion. So what was it? The Council of Trent was the spearhead of the Catholic Counter-Reformation. It consisted of a series of meetings involving high-ranking members of the church, mostly bishops, which spanned 18 years. Its purpose was to clarify Catholic doctrine and oppose the efforts of John Calvin and Martin Luther, who were leading the Protestant Reformation in Europe at the time. It was the 19th ecumenical council recognized by the Catholic Church. So when did it happen? The council lasted from 1545 to 1563 with a ton of twists and turns in planning and execution. And we had a lot more detail on the in the notes here, but it was very long and very extensive. But in general, I'll give you a rundown. There was plague. There were wars. Uh, Charles V just kept causing a bunch of trouble and different popes um, came and went. There were a total of three, I believe, who were at least. Yeah, at least. Uh, who were involved uh, during this whole the whole 18 years. So the reason it took so long was because, A, there was no instant, instant communication, there were plagues, there was war, and, you know, different cities just always couldn't afford to host such an event, basically. Mm-hmm. So because of all of that and just the slow pace of life at the time, it just took a whole bunch of planning and 18 whole years to get it done. So why did it happen? The lead-up to the Council of Trent is about as complicated as the scheduling but I'll add a little bit to what Daniel said here. As we discussed in episode nine of this podcast, Epic Last Stands of History, go check it out on YouTube, BitChute, or Apple Podcasts. You won't regret it. Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was causing some trouble in Europe at this time. Only 10 years prior to the events we're discussing now, his army sacked Rome and nearly killed Pope Clement VII. As a result, the Pope negotiated a deal with Charles V, trading his life for a bunch of money and more importantly, the promise of reforming the church. Meanwhile, Martin Luther and John Calvin were making waves in Germany and Switzerland, respectively, and their criticisms of the Catholic Church were growing in popularity. Protestantism was no longer confined to their physical spheres of influence. The ideas were spreading far and wide, forcing the church to address growing hostility and rejection of church doctrine. It's almost, I don't know, it's almost pitiful how long it took them to respond. Yeah, yeah, because they just kept delaying it. I guess the 95 theses were... He he nailed them right, and, yeah. and just basically published them in I think fifteen seventeen. Correct. And it wasn't until the fifteen forties that we even saw the first council take place. The first yeah, meeting by, take place. You know, twenty something years is a lot of time to spread what you got to say. Yeah. Spread discontent. Yeah. I think they just didn't take them seriously. Yeah, they. I I I totally agree. Uh, based on the research, it seemed like they thought this was just going to stay. In the local out. areas, fizzle out in Germany. And then it was just like, oh, no, now this is all over Europe. And now these two guys are like a real force. And now they're kind of joining forces with Charles V, and he's recruiting them into his army. And now they're sacking Rome. Oh, no. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's sad that it got to that point that the Pope almost died before they were like, yeah, maybe we should actually address this issue. Yeah, and lots of leaders were attracted to Protestantism because it gave them uh, – it meant they had no influence from the Pope. The Pope couldn't order them around. They were out from under his thumb. Yep. Exactly. Anyway, what did it cover and what was its purpose? Throughout 25 separate meetings, the council covered a number of topics and tackled a number of objectives. Let's cover a few of them. Condemn Protestantism. Oppose the Protestant views on justification and reinforce the teaching that good works are also important. Basically, faith alone isn't good enough. Keep the Apocrypha as part of the biblical canon. These books include teachings of prayers for the dead, purgatory, and salvation through good works. Reinforce the importance of 
transubstantiation, which the 13th session referred to as that wonderful and singular conversion of the whole substance of the bread into the body and of the whole substance of the wine into the blood, the species only of the bread and wine remaining, which conversion, indeed, the Catholic Church most aptly calls transubstantiation. Protestants were critical of this belief and even called it Aristotelian pseudo-philosophy. Well, they didn't like Aristotle at all, so I don't know where they're getting that from. Yeah. They probably think he's all his stuff is pseudo-philosophy. Now, it also clarified the church's stance on indulgences. Since Catholic doctrine insists that sins must be forgiven or washed away in this life or in purgatory, it is very important to have these sins forgiven. This provided an opportunity for some in the church to make money by selling indulgences. The council agreed to reform the practice to curb abuses, but insisted that anyone who framed indulgences themselves as useless was dead wrong. Doctrines regarding purgatory were affirmed. The validity and necessity of pilgrimages, veneration of saints, relics, and the Virgin Mary were reaffirmed. They had already been affirmed before in previous councils, but... Yeah, they just wanted to make double sure you understood. Virgin Mary is right up there. Yep. They reminded everyone that there were seven sacraments, not just two as the Lutherans believed, because they only endorsed baptism and communion, whereas the Catholic Church has baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, reconciliation, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and holy orders. The 24th session clarified the Church's stance on marriage. They basically said, no concubines... Too bad. Yeah, sad. <laughs> Celibacy is based AF. A valid wedding had to be had to happen in front of a priest and two witnesses. And they said you couldn't get remarried while your spouse was still alive, even if they cheated on you. Now, is that still the way? Because I thought you, you now you can't even get remarried at all. Even if like your spouse dies, you can't get remarried. What? If you're Catholic. Is that true? No. Really? That was, wow. I was under the impression that like if your spouse just died. Marriage ends on death. Oh, okay. So you can get remarried. Mm-hmm. Okay. As long as you're, you don't have any, you know, valid marriages, you're free to remarry. Okay. Unless you're a deacon, then you can't get remarried after your wife dies. Okay. But now if you get divorced, you can't get remarried. Correct. Because there's no such thing as divorce. It's just like separation from your spouse. Okay. I think the last one was just tacked on, like uh, not only in this notes, but like in the council itself. They were just like, hey, by the way. By the way, we're going (laughs) to change the calendar because it's kind of off and we're Easter's becoming less and less in the spring. Yeah. Fixed the great Julius Caesar's great calendar. Yeah, good calendar. Incredible calendar, believe me. Do you know the difference between the two? Well, from what I was reading, I think when they changed it to the Gregorian calendar, um, they took, they said, okay, in in the span of four centuries, we would have 100 leap days. Now we're going to have 97. Mm -hmm. And that helped to keep it on track. Yes, basically they... I think they fast-forwarded about 12 days or something to get it on track again. Yeah. And then every year, divisible by 100, that's not divisible by 400, is not a leap year. Yeah. So 2100 won't be a leap year. Oh, okay. There you go. That's how you know. There you go. So, but that uh, that's what we've had since then. Yep. That's what, every, that's what all the West uses. Mm-hmm. The East actually still uses a Julian calendar. Just every, every century, they just alter it to make it right. Oh, they just go and just fast forward or Yeah, they just like fast forward every now and then. It's called the revised Julian calendar, also known as the Gregorian calendar. Yeah, really. Come on. So how was it received? How was the Council of Trent received by Protestants, by the world, etc.? Well, obviously, it didn't solve all the Catholics' problems. Um, Needless to say, Protestantism continued to grow despite the Council's efforts to challenge it. Um, But as we said, the the challenging came so late and, and it just, it was a can of worms. You know, they'd already let it out, so it was hard to kind of get the uh, – I'm mixing metaphors here, but get the toothpaste back in the tube. Um, but we can be a little bit more specific than that here. Eighty-seven books were written blasting the council, half of which were penned by a man named Pierre Paolo Vergario, a former papal uh, nuncio. So he was a member of the church, a very high-ranking like diplomat, right? and he became a Protestant reformer. As mentioned earlier, Protestant participation in the council itself dwindled uh, early on and eventually became non-existent. You know, there were there were efforts made to extend to them invitations. I think twice Charles V negotiated with them and said, hey, come on in and we'll let you guys talk about it and, and express yourselves and you'll have the right to say your piece. And they said, nah, no thanks. So the Catholics had to continue on without them. 
Uh, with the discovery of the New World, this might be the biggest one, uh, Protestants who felt oppressed by the church ran from their lands in search of better opportunities and religious freedom. Protestants were able to spread their version of Christianity by converting slaves and Native Americans, uh, though the Spanish conquistadors did their fair share farther down south, but I think the, the numbers were definitely on the side of Protestants. I don't think so at all. You don't think so? I mean, think about it. It's Mexico down, actually, like most, like half of America and down was Catholic. This is true. However, I would argue that maybe, may, okay, maybe you're right about numbers. Maybe they had numbers on their side. That's fair. But as far as influence and power, I mean, those nations that were converted to Catholicism did not did not grow nearly the same way as as America, as the United States, what would, would later become the United States. So the Protestantism really took hold in America, and that Protestant influence then spread out once America became an economic and political superpower. So I would say that, yeah, numbers. You the mean Catholics, the Protestants' greed helped them? Uh, <laughs> the Protestant work ethic, work ethic, I guess you could say. But, I mean, you know, tomato, tomato. Some people would say that's greed. But, yeah, essentially that's what I'm saying is that they were able to exert their influence, and that influence was a Protestant influence. So they may not have had numbers, but they certainly had more money and more political and military sway, I guess, later on as the centuries went on. And the, the American colonists were exiles from – uh, like England, which yeah. was Protestant. Yes. They were just crazier Protestants than the Anglicans were. Yeah, I guess you're right. Anyways. Anyway, uh, but with greater religious freedom came greater division over uh, smaller and smaller issues. And this is the rub here. As of now, there are around 200 major Protestant denominations in the U.S. alone, and literally tens of thousands of non-denominational churches across the country. And they are very difficult or impossible to classify. One thing is for sure, there is little unity in Protestantism. All right, so now uh, we have the Second Vatican Council, which was the 21st and most recent ecumenical council recognized by the Catholic Church. It lasted from 1962 to 1965. See, that's how you do it. Three years. <laughs> yeah, no plagues, no yeah. Charles V. <laughs> it was called by, uh, I think he's now saint, but Pope John XXIII enclosed under Pope Paul VI. I think he's venerable. Every pope since has affirmed it. There have been four, I think, four popes since the closing of Vatican II. It was meant to address relations between the church and the modern world. That was the whole point of it. It has been noted that it was one of the few councils, although not the only, which was not convened to deal with a specific conflict or heresy. It was just, what are we going to do about modernity? Yeah, it was like, what, how are we going to adjust ourselves to be relevant? Wow. All, most of the others were like, okay, we got Arianism, we got these other heresies, like, let's get, let's meet together and you condemn it. Yeah. Or there's some, like, temporal problem, like, you know, the seat of Constantinople is getting too powerful and something like that. Yeah. Or even, like, Trent, where it was, oh, there's this new split off of our religion. What are we going to do? Yeah, heresy. Yeah. Um, okay, so it was a turning away from old school scholasticism, which is what St. Thomas Aquinas was a big part of and an embrace of more modern theological systems. As Pope John Twenty-Third said, it's time to open the windows and let in some fresh air. Hmm. Some people might uh, might discuss whether the air was fresh or dirty. I don't know. It's up for Let debate. in some of that smog. Yeah. <laughs> the church wanted to be more relevant and influential with the ways of modernity. Sixteen whopping documents were released over three years. How long were those documents? Some are really long and some are not long. Oh, you know, it depends. But like you could you could read them. It's not like a bill passed by Congress. They're long. I mean, some are probably dozens of pages long. Oh, okay. It's not like, but not thousands. It's, and it's thousands. not Atlas Shrugged or anything. Oh, of the sixteen, four were dogmatic constitutions. Three were declarations, and nine were decrees. Doesn't mean much to most people, but thought I'd mention it. The constitutions dealt with the liturgy, ecclesiology, which is the study of the church the Bible, and dealing with modernity. The declarations dealt with education, non-Christian religions, and religious freedom. And I will say the ones I've mentioned so far are the big contenders for controversy. The rest aren't as important. But the decrees dealt with the media, Eastern Catholics, which we mentioned earlier, kind of gave them more respect, more less like unwanted stepbrothers and... Uh, more of part of the family. More part of the family. They threw some respect on their name. Yeah, Definitely. There's ecumenism, bishops, religious life, the priesthood, the role of the laity, which was expanded, and evangelism. 
We will discuss some of the details of these documents later on, at least the spicy ones. The council allowed the media to have unprecedented access to the proceedings. Dozens of Protestant and Eastern Orthodox denominations sent representatives to view the council, though they couldn't vote. So let's compare the uh, Latin and Novus Ordo Masses. Uh, the Tridentine Mass, named after the Council of Trent, has been around since, well, the Council of Trent ended. It formally established the Unified Latin Rite and lasted from 1570 to 1970 when it was replaced by the Mass of Paul VI, although it was altered by various popes. However, even going back before the Council of Trent, we have to acknowledge that the Latin liturgies stem from one main Roman liturgy, which goes back to at least the 6th century, possibly centuries older than that. Of course, the liturgy went through various changes over that time, but the general structure and essence would be recognizable to anyone over that time period. The Novus Ordo Mass, or the Mass of Paul VI, has been the official liturgy of the Latin Rite Church since the Second Vatican Council concluded. It is about 50 years old now. We explore the Council of Trent and Protestantism because traditionalist critics of the Novus, uh, Novus Ordo Mass uh, compare it to Protestantism. Additionally, Many of the abuses done after Vatican II were similar to what Protestants were doing. While bearing many general similarities to its predecessor, the Novus Ordo was definitely full of innovation as well. A few differences here. The Tridentine Mass is not focused on the congregants in attendance. At times, it almost feels like you're listening in on the priest's private service. The Novus Ordo Mass is meant to involve the laity more in the Mass, uh, with more participation through songs and responses and more audibility and visibility of what's happening. Would you agree with that from your experience? Uh, you're saying that the Novus Ordo versus the Latin Mass. More, yeah. Yes, I would say it's would definitely you, did more. Did you feel like you were listening in on his private prayers in Latin Mass? A little bit. Yeah, it, it definitely is, it had that feel. I wouldn't say that it was exactly like that, like I was almost like eavesdropping. But um, it did seem a little bit more private, if only more private in that it was like just us, not like projecting it out into the universe, you know, but it was just like just directed to us. I don't know. That's kind of a vibe I got. Yeah. Well, you went to a high mass. So if you go into a low mass, I think you get more of a vibe. It's a lot quieter and a lot of what he says you can't hear. Oh, okay. But. See that, and that might have been just a flaw in my listening ability. I may have just been paying attention to something else and not really noticing that he was doing that. Because like I said, you know, I didn't understand the Latin. So if he was speaking in Latin, it might have just kind of flowed over me rather than like really hitting me. Oh, he's speaking in private and I'm listening. Hmm, interesting. Similar to the previous point, Novus Ordo Masses are in the vernacular language, making them more understandable to the congregants. Though it must be noted that a lot more people knew at least basic Latin back in the day, especially if you were Catholic, you were taught early what the responses meant. Mm -hmm. The priest in the Latin Mass often faces away from the congregation and always does so during the consecration. I don't know if you noticed that. He faced the tabernacle instead of us whenever he consecrated. Oh, I didn't notice. Whereas in Re Novus Ordo Masses, he faces the congregation. There's a little table that they put in the middle for regular Masses. Oh. And he does it like facing you, like lifting it up like this. Oh. The Latin Mass way of facing toward the tabernacle away from the people is called ad orientum or to the east because traditionally churches have the tabernacle on the east side of the church. In Novus Ordo Masses, the priest faces the laity during consecration, and that's known as ad populum or to the people. While meant to make the laity feel included, it often gives a bad message that substantiation somehow requires lay participation in order to occur. And that's how people interpret that sometimes? Well, I feel like some people feel like it wouldn't be real if they, if, if they didn't feel involved in it, as if we're almost all transubstantiating. Hmm. There's been one time I, at a Novus Ordo parish that I don't go to except on rare occasions where the priest literally like did a 360 with the Eucharist, almost like making sure that it shined on all of us like it was a beacon. Oh, that was so bad. Oh, <laughs> was that cringe? It was cringe. <laughs> well, Almost, I think it, it, to me, now correct me if I'm wrong, it seems as though nothing else matters other than you eating and drinking. It's like a person, it's, it's, that's, when you go up there and you do that, it doesn't matter about anyone else. You're receiving that and that's it. You know, yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, you, a lay person has no involvement in the consecration yeah. at all. It's all the priests doing it. You don't have the power to do it. Oh, well, then there you go. Exactly. So what does it matter? Yeah. It, it was like he was trying to shine a beam on all of us. Personally, I think he was just an attention seeker and liked to perform, but oh well. Oh, uh, maybe. 
many prayers were removed when creating the Novus Ordo Mass. Novus Ordo feels more like a spectacle in a performance, while Latin Mass feels more like the worship of God. Especially in this is this is especially true in like very bad Novus Ordo parishes. It, it can get real cringy, real boomer. Oh yeah, doing stuff like that, shining yeah. it on people. Yeah, lots of stuff like that. Novus Ordo can have the cringy praise and worship music you may hear at your local megachurch. People who attend Latin Mass tend to be more traditional in beliefs, politics, dress, etc. They tend to believe what the church teaches about controversial topics to a higher degree. And if you just poll Catholics across the country mm-hmm. who go to regular Mass, it's like less than half think abortion's wrong. You know, like uh, definitely less than half believe that gay marriage is wrong. Yeah, it's more. There's more liberalism. Yeah, I'd say definitely. So there are some big differences between Latin Mass and the, the English service, uh, Novus Ordo, and uh, differences between the attendees. A Latin Mass was more formal, the other more relaxed in form. Uh, Latin was way more formal and somber, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the length of time was uh, different, 45 minutes about versus about an hour and a half. And in dress, Latin was more conservative and modest. Fewer people were at the Latin Mass, but the ones who were there were either big families or old people. Uh, big families and old people being the most base groups of people in any congregation anywhere, just in general. Uh, and the sermon seemed bigger as a part of the regular service, probably because it was shorter overall. And so the sermon seemed like it took up more space, so it seemed more of like the main show. I wouldn't say that's always the case. You Oftentimes say- it can be reversed. Really? Yeah, it's more like the priest trying to make a spectacle of himself. And that's that's definitely something that can go either way. Yeah. So why is Vatican II so controversial? And if you know anything about the modern church, you know that it is indeed very controversial. Yeah, this is the main event right here. Yeah, especially if you hang out in traditionalist circles. This is like all they talk about, really. Yeah. First, we have to ask the question, very vital to the discussion. Does Vatican II contain error or heresy? We're going to go over three of the most controversial documents from the council. They're often brought up by what I call rad trads, radical traditionalists. Okay. Mad trads is a synonym, very yeah. angry all the time. <laughs> yeah. Especially about Pope Francis, quite justly often. So first let's go over Lumen Gentium, Light of the Nations. This was a dogmatic constitution on the church. A very long document, I think maybe the longest. But the controversy is around one sentence, uh, saying that the church subsists in the Catholic church. So this might seem to go against the doctrine that outside the church there is no salvation. Extra ecclesia nolum salus. So that's that's what is generally considered the norm right there. That was what it was before the council. Like before outside the church there is no, yes, outside the church there is no salvation. Okay, makes sense. But of course there are cases of like people who never heard of the church and all that. But yeah. anyways. They, the traditionalists say that instead of saying the church subsists in the Catholic Church, they should have said the church is the Catholic Church, as in there is no bigger entity that contains the Catholic Church. Yeah. It's like we are the church and everyone else is not the church. Because of what is that bigger entity? Yeah, exactly. That That's the question. This leaves some ambiguity about what the church is and who can be saved. I will say that, like, Pope Benedict XVI has addressed it and tried to mollify the the conservatives, saying, like, oh, it doesn't mean that the church is this, like, includes Protestants in the proper sense. I won't get into that. You can look into it on your own. It's very complicated, and the Latin is complicated, too. Secondly, Nostra Aetate, in our time. This was a declaration which discussed the relationship between Catholics and other religions. This ought to get interesting. <laughs> there can be true elements in any religion, and the church does not respect or does not reject truth, although the Catholic Church contains the whole truth. So these other religions may contain elements of it, especially like Protestantism and Judaism. Mm-hmm. And so what you're saying right there, that was from Vatican II. Yes. Okay, so they were saying in Vatican II, some people may have some truth. We have the whole thing. Yes. Gotcha. Like, of course, the Orthodox have a ton of truth, yeah. like maybe 95% truth. This also comes from Bishop Fulton Sheen. He, he said something similar. but It also said we need to have dialogue between religions. Fair enough. Jews as a whole are not responsible for the death of Jesus. Previously, mo- like I think probably a majority of people of Catholics thought, yeah, we can blame Blame Jews, all the Jews. Blame <laughs> all the Jews for deicide or 
killing God. Yeah. It's a big, a pretty big uh, charge. <laughs> Maybe the biggest charge. Yeah. Yeah, actually. The biggest charge. Good point. Yeah. So it said, don't be anti-Semitic, y'all. Because uh, <laughs> this was written, of course, after the Holocaust. So they, like, yeah, pretty close after. Only uh, like 20 years. Yeah, they were like Pope John the Twenty Third was the pope after the what some people called Hitler's pope. It's completely unfounded. But pope. he was just the pope. Who he was, was the alive pope. At the time. He was the pope during the Nazi. Yeah, during yeah. World War Two and when the Nazis were in power. Yeah, that's that's pretty crummy to call him Hitler's pope. Yeah, well, some people say he like just didn't oppose Hitler or like liked what he was doing to the Jews or whatever, but it's not true. At most, he was cowardly. Anyways, they talk about Muslims too that they quote adore the one God and honor the Virgin Mary and Jesus. The second part is definitely true. They don't see Jesus as God, but they see him as like the best prophet besides Muhammad. Yeah, like second best. Yeah, second best. So they they set the Virgin Mary and Jesus out on a higher platform than the Jews do, for instance. Yes, they certainly do. So it was controversial when they said they adore the one God. Are they saying that are they saying that Muslims worship the same God as Christians? It it brings up a good point. I think a lot of the theologians would say, yes, we do worship the same God. Like all three worship the yeah, same God. I mean, it's mostly taken for granted that Jews do. Yeah. But it's it's more contentious to say that Muslims do. We won't get into that today because that would take up a whole other hour if we really yeah. wanted to. But that was controversial. So we should also encourage peace betre- between religions and forget about past conflicts. Mm-hmm. Okay, thirdly, dignitatis humanae, of the dignity of the human person. It was a declaration which states that the church supports religious liberty. Now, this was actually the point that caused the SSPX Oh, to, yes. To form. We we discussed it privately. Yeah. But it was the point which really caused Bishop well, Archbishop Lefebvre to reject Vatican II after he had already signed it. But, oh. you know, decades later, he it caused him to say that I don't accept Vatican II because religious freedom is not the the magisterium of the church. So it, the trads, as I said, would argue that the previous teaching was something more akin to religious toleration which means you can have a confessor state, like the, the official state religion is Catholicism. But then uh, you would you would tolerate the other religions, but you may do like public funds and stuff to, to the Catholic Church. The document still allows for confessional states where Catholicism is the official state religion, but acknowledges that most states in the modern era are secular. It is not an endorsement of religious indifferentism, which is the belief that it doesn't really matter what religion you are, we all go to heaven, all that kind of stuff. It was just a political declaration. Of course, we must not tolerate untruth in the church, and we should promote Catholicism everywhere. So those are the three really controversial documents. In Vatican II. Yes. But for for the sake of history, something else happened. Okay, so we've got the spirit of Vatican II. And this was the notion that Vatican II threw all doctrines into question and the liturgy and dogmas were flexible. This led to all sorts of abuses by priests and some bishops, like irreverent masses, messing with the liturgy, progressive messages from the pulpit, etc. The Vatican II documents were more conservative that the spirit advocates conceded. Here are some uh, American trends from 1970 to uh, 2020. Playing devil's advocate. Yeah. Total priests have gone from 59,192 down to 35,513, 40% decrease. The number of religious, uh, like monks, nuns, etc., decreased by about 70%. 29.5 million are former Catholics. That's in America only. In America, 30 million people, that means, used to be Catholic and are not now. That's a lot. That's a huge chunk. Catholics went from 26% to 22% of the population in the United States, right? Yes. Uh, despite a huge influx of largely Catholic immigrants from the South. Catholic schools are down 50%. 23% of Catholics attend Mass weekly compared to 55% in 1970. 85% of people who are confirmed as Catholics stop practicing the faith by 21 years old. That's the worst out of all That's of ouch. That's a big, bad one. Uh, traditionalists argue that Vatican II caused these bad statistics. That's just what they argue. While others say it would have happened anyway because of general trends in religion due to secularism, and liberalism. So there are some different ideas there. What would the church be like without the council? It's impossible to say what would have happened in an alternate timeline. 
But here are some statistics on American Christianity according to Gallup. The percent of Protestants uh, has gone from 65% in 1970 to 37% in 2020, with 9% being non-specific Christians, so more of those non-denominational people. So at best, you could say 46% Protestant. In 1970, 91% of Americans were Christian. Now, 68%. Yikes. And a lot of those people don't practice. Yes. So they'll just identify as Christian, but they don't practice, right? Mm -hmm. Religious nuns, uh, not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, went from 3% to 20%. That's a lot. It must be noted that all religion has declined in the West uh, besides maybe Islam. But Christianity is booming in Africa and other places throughout the world. So it's not all a sad story. Is Vatican II the cause of these gains? Who can say? Yeah, it's really speculation. So there's lots of division in the Catholic Church today, obviously. And let's go from through the factions, going from, quote, far right to far left in the church. And I think actually the right-left spectrum is appropriate for this topic. Oh, okay. Because it's, it's is... one-dimensional. It's yeah. like religion. So if on the far right... You have the set of contests or SSPX types. I'm not conflating the two. Don't get triggered, okay? But like those, <laughs> the SEDs and SSPX, I'm going to group them as far right. They believe that we haven't had a real pope since Vatican II, so the, the 1960s, or since Benedict XVI, uh, supposedly before quit. Before Francis, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, before Benedict, Benedict supposedly quit. They say it wasn't actually a valid you know, uh, resignation, so he's still kind of pope. They're called like Benevacontis is kind of their their nickname. Hmm. But either way, Pope Francis isn't a real pope. It's convenient. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they usually believe that Vatican II contained error or heresy. SSPX is a very complicated issue, but they aren't in full communion with Rome because they refuse to accept the full Vatican II documents. SSPX clergy cannot be said of a contest. They swear obedience to the Pope. It's like part of their way to try to be in communion, but kind of still be apart. Hmm. But many of the laity undoubtedly are SEDs. So would it would it be a fair comparison to say the SEDs are kind of like uh, the QAnon of the Catholic world? They I think that, that the, their man's gonna be reinstated. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, just wait, just next month. Trust me, he's gonna he's gonna be reinstated. It, it was all a fake. We could do an episode on that, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, kind of, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, there's this is the similar. Po- there's the point, like, though, this was mentioned to me by someone I know, that if if we haven't had a valid pope since the 60s, there's not a single valid bishop because oh. they'd all, they all would have died by now, everyone who was ordained by another bishop. Oh, okay. So That's how apostolic su- succession works. It requires a bishop in order to ordain more priests and bishops. Oh, okay. So because be- if there is no pope, then there are there is no, like— um, what am I trying to say? There, there's no people below him because they're not official, right? Well, they would still be, if they were ordained before him, they would still be official. But no new ones. But yeah. Ooh, that's kind of tough. So then you, that's a big pill to swallow. You kind of yeah. end there, up There's having, probably like no, there's hardly any priests alive who were ordained before like 1960 something. Yeah, so you just got a bunch of illegitimate priests running yeah, around. Yeah, and then the whole Catholic Church is defunct. Yeah. Anyways, SEDs are very active on the internet, but they're actually not that many in number. So, so now we got going from right to left, the Latin mass only people or the rad trads that I mentioned. Latin mass to them is the only way to go. They would be angry if they had to go to a regular mass. They would say something like, the church has been infiltrated by Freemasons and modernists. We need to step up and fix the church. I'm not going to say who I'm paraphrasing because that will get them their mob on us. But they're the type to call Pope Francis Bergoglio. Why do they call him that? That's, That's a his funny last name. name. Oh, <laughs> Jorge Bergoglio was his real name. Oh, George. George Bergoglio. <laughs> they just call him Bergoglio or Jorge. It's like, come on, just call him Pope. Pope Francis. Yeah. Pope Francis. And they all insult the Pope publicly and privately. So they're a the type to come out and just insult him to everybody. They publicly also call out errant bishops and priests for promoting heresy or sin. Oftentimes they need it, especially if they're predators, but you can go overboard too. They love Latin, obviously. There's the traditional Catholics. They think the liturgy needs to be reformed to be more traditional. They claim that many clergy are steering the faithful away from orthodoxy and committing grave sin. They're scandalized by Pope Francis, but they probably won't publicly criticize him too much, only sometimes. They like the Latin Mass, but will appreciate a reverent novus ordo. 
they try their best to avoid sin, frequent confession, and mass attendance, and they really try to lead their family in the religious life. Now, let me say one thing. This sounds like you. I mean, I'm a little biased. <laughs> well, I mean, but uh, that sound, that fits yeah, you. I, I appreciate I don't, it. I don't think you fall into rad trad. I mean, you you. I've, s- I've said, been rad trad in the past, but I've, yeah. I'm not no longer, if I'm going to be honest. I'm trying to do a— You're just normal trad. No. Yeah. I'm trying to do an unbiased account. I will be—the fringes I will make fun of. Sure. And we're about to make fun of some. Okay, so now you got the moderate Catholics, most of which are cradle Catholics in America. They're pretty ignorant about the faith and the teachings of the church. They go to mass out of obligation. They don't differ too much from a standard American. Couldn't really tell them apart. They want to leave mass in time to watch the football game that's coming on at noon. Come on, Father. Yeah. Often Catholic for ethnic reasons, like if they're Irish or Italian and they're just proud of that. And it's like, oh, I'm Irish, so I go to church. They walk out of church after receiving the Eucharist. Like, I'd on my head out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's basically them. Then we have the social justice Catholics. So who would have thought that that could be a, a combination there? But it's true. They it's really a, are. It's a very large portion of American Catholics. Yeah. Uh, they just care about the poor and the environment and LGBTQ plus stuff. And they don't strongly oppose abortion or gay marriage. They think the church needs to change with the times. They think voting for a pro-abortion politician is OK if he or she is progressive on welfare and the environment or whatever. But what about the death penalty? Their one child will not be a Catholic as an adult. Uh, <laughs> Friar James Martin? Father. Father, Father James Martin. If you're in tune at all with modern Catholicism, you know who that errant priest is. Ah, well, that goes over my head, but I'm sure some of you in the audience got a kick out of that one. Uh, two times a year, Mass goer. They don't know that it's a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday. Almost completely ignorant about the faith. Their children have approximately a 0% chance of being Catholic as adults. Joe, you know who you are. (laughs) Nominal Catholic. I went to Catholic school, so you better agree with me when I say that the church loves gay marriage now. Abortion doesn't matter. Why are you saying that I haven't been to confession in five years? That doesn't matter. Pretty much a liberal Protestant right there. (laughs) I mean, the the lines are being blurred. My unbiased commentary is being blurred, too. (laughs) So who is to blame for the decline of the church in Europe and America? The trads say Vatican II in modernism, liberals say traditionalism, judginess, and not being relevant. And here's my take just from an outside perspective. For what it's worth, I think the decline of the church uh, is also caused by just technology. Uh, exponential advancement of tech has created exponential increase in the pace of changes in social structures. Life is moving just too dang fast for the church to keep up with uh, with these progressives. And the progress is moving uh, so fast forward and providing so much temptation and distraction to the would-be trads, people who would normally, without all this distraction, be brought up in the church and to be traditional type people. It's just distracting them with the social media and the everything out there, taking them away from church and religion at large. So I think that's a big part of it. That's a good take. So how should a faithful Catholic respond we got to start with which factions would make you a Catholic who is not in good standing, because technically if you're baptized in the Catholic Church, you were always a Catholic, even if you don't acknowledge it, or if you're bad. Just by canon law, you'll always be a Catholic. Um, I would say those not in good standing are Sedevacontists, SSPX, and Social Justice Catholics. The two times a year mass-goer and the nominal Catholics are not, they're not practicing Catholics, but they may not be in bad standing. It kind of depends if they just come from a conservative family, maybe they just happen to have the right opinions. They don't know why, but, you know. So, first question. Is it possible to be correct about church teaching, yet go to hell? What do you think? Yes. As an can, expert you, on the matter. Yeah, I'm totally definitely an expert. Um, probably because that's where I'm headed. But um, <laughs> but anyway, in all seriousness, though, yeah, you can have all the right opinions and say all the right things and then just go out and do all the wrong things. Yep. So, yeah, it's totally possible. You could say, I believe X, Y, Z, and then go and totally upend that uh, in the next moment. Yep, I'd agree. So um, your faith isn't enough to save you. It's not sola fide. So is, it, is doctrine even important if you're a good person? Now, uh, that's what a lot of modern people say. They just think everyone goes to heaven. Like, oh, like everyone besides Hitler goes to heaven. You know? Yeah, really, exactly. I don't know. A good person is so relative. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the that's the the key right there. Is like, 
well, how do you, you define good person one way, we define it another, and like church doctrine is how the Catholic Church defines good person, mm-hmm. following it and and believing in it. So, yeah, you 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 have to follow that in order to be good in their in their estimation. I'd agree. I'd say works by themselves aren't enough to save you. You have to have faith and works together in order to get to heaven or at least purgatory. Yes. What are the implications of saying that Vatican II is heretical? Now, that's something I've been encountering a lot on the internet. People just say, "Oh, it's heresy. You got to throw it out." Now, you got to think think bucko a minute before you <laughs> you yeah. go saying stuff like that. Hold on there. Yeah. Because if you start saying that an ecumenical council called for and approved by multiple popes is heretical, it's tantamount to saying that the church can fall into error. And then Matthew 16 is out the window saying that, which says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Yes, I actually went through and read that when you when you put that in the notes. Yeah. And I was trying to figure out what exactly, which line you were, you were re- referencing. And that was one of them I thought, okay, he's probably talking about that. Because what Jesus is essentially saying to them is that, you know, basically you will build my church you will the church is indefectible yeah yeah it's it's like it, it's from me and god it's through me and through us and if it's wrong then we're wrong right and we can't be wrong yeah. and like this is our teaching so so long as you are part of us you're good yeah. yeah so if the gates of hell hell have prevailed against the church the show's over time to go home so be careful when saying an ecumenical council that has been approved by multiple popes is an error it's a slippery slope to schism and apostasy, and if it's not for you, you're causing a lot of other people to fall into those sins. Yeah, so let me make sure I, I got you right. So what you're essentially saying is that because it, it, they went through all the proper channels to do this, to, to bring this— Yeah, it was called by a pope. Uh, it was a convocation of bishops around the world, thousand, at least a thousand, I think, mm-hmm. and they came to— they. Uh, had all these documents that they voted on. They voted all of them into effect, like 90-plus percent of bishops for everyone. And then at the end, the Pope said, I approve all these documents and the council itself. It's closed. Okay, so they did everything by the book. So, you know, where did they have error? If if you don't like it, that's your problem because well, you follow the church, right? Going back to a previous section, they would say that the previous magisterium is contradicted by Vatican II. Therefore, it's not a valid council because it promotes heresy. But, you know, I, I like think it's said, a very slope. hard hard argument to make Yeah, considering the authority of the church and those involved being popes and bishops and mm-hmm. all that. So let's talk about Pope Francis's motu proprio and public response. Before we discuss the recent motu proprio from Pope Francis, we need to discuss how the Latin Mass was legalized, quote-unquote, again. In 2007, Pope Benedict XVI released a motu proprio called Summorum Pontificum. This explicitly allowed the extraordinary form, or Latin Mass, to be celebrated by priests who wanted to do so. Benedict specifically noted that the extraordinary form had never been uh, abrogated or outlawed. Traditionis Custodes was a motu proprio released by Pope Francis in July of 2021. It reinforces the idea that the ordinary form, a.k.a. vernacular mass, is the official liturgy of the church. It gives bishops the exclusive right to allow or forbid the the Latin mass, and they can forbid it at any time. Can they do it for any reason? They They don't have to have a reason. They can just do it. Like It's not allowed. Oh. It's against the law. Okay. Uh, No one that performs a Latin mass is allowed to deny the validity of Vatican II or the new liturgy. Uh, Tridentine masses uh, must be performed in a location— in which regular masses are not performed, and no new uh, parishes are allowed to be constructed for this purpose. No new pro-Latin mass groups are allowed. Only pre-existing ones are permitted. Mm, That's interesting. Uh, Priests ordained after the release of this motu proprio must get permission from their bishop to perform the Latin mass, and the bishop must consult the Holy See before allowing it. Now, the Holy See is like, is Rome. Yeah. Okay. The Vatican. Uh, There were other minor things, but that concludes the important stuff there. Uh, There was widespread confusion from bishops and canon lawyers about the motu proprio. A lot of the confusion was about the location clause, which seems to forbid Latin Mass entirely. How can a Latin Mass be celebrated in a location where regular Masses are not held without building new churches? Do they have to be held in gyms? The document, in general, was poorly written from a legal perspective. Uh, It is for these reasons that many bishops have allowed the status quo until more clarity uh, comes from the Vatican. Yep, like we went to... We went to the Latin Mass after this document was released. So yes, I don't know. Maybe it'll be 
be out of here in the next year. I don't know. So what were Pope Francis's motives? A few come to mind. These are what I would think he would say, not necessarily what I agree with. There's the schismatic tendencies within the Latin mass community. Supposedly, it contains many sedevacantists and even more people who deny Vatican II and hate the new mass. Personally, I do know some people who are the latter. Yeah. Who deny Vatican II. And that's why they go to Latin mass, because they think it's the only valid one. Mm-hmm. That's partly right, at least. There's supposed rigidity in clericalism. Those are Pope Francis buzz- buzzwords. The old right is not flexible, and it makes people, quote, rigid and, quote, pharisaical. It places the priests at a more elevated uh, status, thus reduce, reducing the laity to mere sheep who must look on his glory. Now, there's a, it exasperate, exacerbates uh, division. Pope Francis claims that Benedict's decision to renew the Latin Mass was to encourage reconciliation and unity in the church. Yet it produced more division, I would agree that it has, with Latin Mass goers seeing themselves as different from the lesser Novus Ordo Catholics. Mm, yeah, the, the patricians and the plebeians. Yeah. There's the scandal of having two liturgies under one rite. The Latin rite is the only one with multiple liturgies, from my understanding. It's not a good look. Every other, like, Eastern Catholic rite just has the one liturgy, which wasn't reformed at Vatican II, by the way. It's been the same. A cynical analysis might say that Pope Francis wanted to really hurt the base of the people who oppose him and his agenda. Most Latin mass goers oppose modernism and oppose his agenda. Just saying. For what it's worth, Father Chad Ripperger traditional priest and exorcist gave 10 problems that tend to plague traditionalists including gnosticism which is thinking the world is bad and spiritual is good elitism sexual sin despair rage disrespect of the magisterium definitely and isolationism now it's up for debate how widespread these faults are but you can kind of think about that on your on your own time and debate it i think it's half true at least some of them so what will be the future of the roman rite uh, that's R-I-T-E. Uh, will Francis kill it, or will it just become more popular? Based on what I see on Facebook, my only access to Catholic views other than from heaven, it seems like many people want to preserve the Latin Mass. I don't know if it's 50-50 split, but there is um, there's certainly a large group of people who want to keep it. What about you? I think the future of the Latin Mass is entirely dependent on what the Pope and now bishops decide to do with it. Uh, if left alone, I think it will continue to grow as liberal parishes suffer from declining numbers, which is ironic considering their emphasis on participation. Sorry, just a little little jab there. And traditional Catholics flock to the Latin Mass. From the demographic evidence so far, it seems that lukewarm Catholics and liberal Catholics will have fewer and less religious children than traditional Catholics. Mm. So the seminaries in the current year also look promising. Seminarians nowadays have a reputation for being trad, as the priest, you know, that you saw at the Latin Mass was yeah. young. Yeah, he was probably uh, like millennial low, or Zoomer. Yeah. No, no, he was in his, like, lower 30s, so he was a oh, Okay, he's a millennial. millennial. Yeah, he's a millennial. Uh, it's also possible that the Novus Ordo will reform to be more reverent so that people won't run away from it so much. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I, no one really knows, but um, I think one thing is for sure. It's going to be dramatic, whatever happens. Dramatic changes, dramatic arguments, uh, dramatic upheavals. Yeah, it's going to be pretty dramatic. So keep your eyes peeled. Now it's time for the takeaways. We barely scratched the surface, but we hope you are interested and do some research on your own time. It took us a lot of time to do this research. It will probably take you a lot of time to go in depth, but it's well worth it. Uh, Latin mass is currently being suppressed, and the future of it is uncertain. And to many, the Latin Mass is a refuge and a rare occasion for beauty and truth. To others, it is a place of bigotry, rigidity, and backwardness. Depends on who you ask. Any discussion of the decline of the church or the battle between tradition and modernism must focus on Vatican II. That was definitely a turning point. The Catholic Church is very divided, and this will only cause problems until it's finally fixed. Lingering questions now. Will the church continue to decline in membership or influence? Would it be preferable to have a smaller yet more devout laity? Ooh, good question. Uh, A small, strong force versus a widespread, more reluctant force. I like the idea of a small, strong force, and especially if they rally into one place. Yeah, and Pope Benedict already said that the church is just going to keep going down and it's going to be like almost a Benedict option situation where there's going to be really devout people people but a lot less a number 
How does every episode of this podcast turn come back to the Benedict Option? You know, it really needs to be an episode. I need to finally read the rule of St. Benedict and the Benedict Option. We'll do that. We're going to make a promise to you guys right now, listeners, loyal listeners out there. We will make an episode about the Benedict Option and how you can do it. How or if you should do it, it we'll, we'll talk about it. But yeah, we'll talk about it. So some people say, well, we need Vatican III. Well, would that solve anything? Vatican III, Revenge of the Sith? I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe it would, but... I don't think so. You don't think it would. It would cause just more division. Yeah, and they might start pronouncing stuff that's even more, you know, objectionable from a traditionalist perspective. So so maybe better the... Uh, this may be a bad phrase here, but maybe better the devil you do know than the devil you don't. <laughs> I mean... No comment. No comment. All right. <laughs> uh, will future Catholics see Vatican II as a good or a bad thing? Well, there be some of them are being more trad right now. So I think in the future, there, it seems to me that it's growing. The negativity towards that is growing. So yeah, maybe they will grow to see it as a bad thing and say, uh, "This is kind of a mistake here." I don't know. What do you think? I hope they start interpreting it in a good way. That's not promoting all this bad stuff, and then they can say, "Oh, it wasn't bad." I don't think I'd ever say it was a great thing. Yeah. But I'm not going to say it's heresy because then I'm putting myself above like every pope since 1960. Yeah, that's yeah. that's. Do you think it'll encourage humility? Because that's a hu- very that's a humble hum- like humility kind of response right there. I think the rat trads are lacking some humility in this aspect, or they just need to learn more about about the documents that came out. Because a lot of them they see that what happened after Vatican II and say, well, it's Vatican II's fault. Yeah. It may be Vatican II's fault, but it's different to say that the council documents themselves are an error. So it's it's a fine point to make. Fair. Okay, finally, is Pope Francis a great reformer, as some say, or a terrible apostate, as some others say? Or is there some truth in between those two extremes? I think he is just a man. So he is capable of sin and error, and just like all of us, right? I guess. I mean, you can't really... I guess that maybe there is some temptation to, to – you should obviously hold him to a higher standard. He's the pope. However, you can't hold him to such a high standard that it's impossible. You know, mm-hmm. the, the man did what he did and is doing what he's doing. You know, I think you just have to step back and try to look at it as fairly as you can. And that's what we tried to do today. I agree. With that, be humble. Sit down. <laughs> that's all for today's show. Join us again next week for even more ancient wisdom.